In this special bonus segment of Rust Belt Abolition Radio, we return to our conversation with renowned historian Heather Ann Thompson as she elaborates on the multifaceted origins of the historic 1971 Attica Uprising, drawing out their resonances with other prison rebellions across history and geography, as well as their telling implications for our present historical moment. The thing about Attica is it, it, when I'm asked about what was the spark to Attica, the answer depends on how far back you want to go. I would actually say that, you know, this activism had been brewing long before even Auburn. I mean, many of the guys at Attica had actually first been locked in the tombs in New York City. They had protested jail conditions in New York City in the, in the tombs. Again, interestingly, very material-driven. You know, bail rules were not fair. Conditions were horrible. But on the other hand, a very po- political critique of, of bail and prisons and jails. So that was in 1970. And then what follows that is Auburn, which very much like Attica was a big rebellion that will you know, take hostages and everything. And that rebellion was, you know, interestingly, first a very peaceful, the men wanted to have a Black Solidarity Day. Management first said yes, then said no. So then they had it anyway. And It was all good until management decided to retaliate. But what interestingly politicized the men the most at Auburn was management's reaction to Black Solidarity Day. And what politicized them even further was management's decision to throw them all in the hole and prosecute them. So many of those men then come to Attica. And so there is a consciousness that the state betrays you, that even if you ask for something, they'll take it away. And... Um, And again, conditions in Attica are terrible. So multiple things are happening on multiple tracks. There are very political guys in Attica who are talking across political lines. There are Black Panthers, there's Five Percenters, there's Weather Underground, um, other factions of the Black Muslims. And, um, you know, that's kind of, there's a political vibe, political education, sociology classes where people are talking about racial oppression in general. And at the same time, they are writing letters to their state senator, and they are asking for basic improvements to the food and to the parole rules and to the conditions in general in the prison. So these are always going on parallel and sometimes intersecting, but parallel tracks, right? Or, you know, these are always happening at the same time. So on September 8th, you know, it was, again, everyone's out in the yard, everyone's kind of minding their own business, but yes, they're also simultaneously having bigger discussions about racism and injustice in America, and management makes the decision to haul in some of these guys for horsing around, they think maybe fighting, and it is the decision to send one of them to keep lock, which is locking you in your cell, um, you know, for an extended period of time, that sends this one individual over the edge. For him personally, that affront is too much to take, and so he um, strikes the officer. What is remarkable about that episode is not so much what happened, it was the reaction of everybody else, which was, again, whether they knew him or not, it's not even particularly clear what the relationship was between Dewar or Lamori or anybody who got involved in this, other than it was clear to them that if it's us or them, we don't trust them, and so it's us. And it's very clear who's, which side you're on. And so it, that leads to a lockdown of the prison that night. And as was always the case, the, these guys are dragged out of their cells. 
and it's much commotion. But because of the longer history of the prison, the guys are worried that they've been beaten to death, that they've been killed. And, and if not killed, certainly very severely beaten. So they're both terrified, but they're also furious. And one of the guys who is particularly angry about it throws a soup can at one of the guards. So he ends up on key block. And then what happens next, I really think, was a series of complete accidental, fortuitous things that actually become the Attica Rebellion. And that's often the case, right? It's this weird confluence of events that will lead to, um, lead to an eruption. And in this case, it was management's decision to lock that particular company with, that held the guy with the soup can, uh, to lock them in a hallway, not let them out to wreck, and send them back to their cells. But they never even told the guards running that company what they were going to do. And so, frankly... It was a management decision that leads to complete panic in that hallway, right? The prisoners feel like this is a trap. They're about ready to be set upon. The guards have no idea what just happened, and all of a sudden they realize there's two of them and 80 men. And it's complete pandemonium. And it's in that pandemonium that a gate opens completely because of the pressure on the gate, which would not have happened had the weld not been faulty in the gate, right? So all of that is accidents of history. But what happens afterwards is a testimony to the deep-seated consciousness that had been built up, some of it political, some of it because people had read Malcolm and Mao and George Jackson, but a lot of it because injustice is pretty crystal clear, I think, for, for people, for human beings. And, and in that moment, it was that combination of people who were organizers and people who had the, the, the voice and understood the importance of organization corralling the energy that was already clearly ready to protest. And that was Attica. So it, so it starts off as a riot, which is complete chaos. I define that as complete chaos. Everyone's panicked. Everyone's freaked out. They're all scared. But within a very short amount of time, it becomes, I, I think, one of the greatest human rights struggles in, um, in American history. Um, can you tell us about the repression and retaliation following the uprising at Attica? So even though I, as a historian and an activist, understood that there had been repression at Attica, I really had no concept of what that meant. And frankly, it wasn't until I had talked to many formerly incarcerated Attica brothers, as well, frankly, as the hostages and the lawyers and the doctors and the people who had, you know, uh, presided over Attica cases that I really began to appreciate. What does repression look like? When prisoners don't just rise up, but dare to dare to not back down, right? Stick to it for not, you know, not five minutes, not three minutes, not an individual rebellion, but over the course of days and standing together. And this was a repression that was first, of course, through gunfire. I mean, just indiscriminately shooting people and spraying um you know, this one yard with 4,000 uh, bullets and, and shotgun pellets. But that was the beginning. That was the tip of the iceberg. Because what happens next is really what prison is about. What happens next was to show the people inside that control is absolute and that it's not just any control. It's not just state control. It's 
uh, in this case, white control. Uh, prisoners were forced to do the white power salute. This is while their wounds are being, you know, urinated in, while they're being kicked and beaten and tortured. And it's all racialized. And all the white prisoners, because there were a lot of white prisoners in Attica, we forget that, you know, in our narrative, um, who had dared to stand with the black prisoners were racialized and vilified and tortured. And in, it, in Attica, the fact that we didn't learn as a nation the repression piece of the story is why I spend so much time on that in the book. I mean, I think readers are really surprised that the actual rebellion you know, takes, takes, what, the first third of the book. But the entire rest of the book is about the repression, not just the physical, but the the, sta- the, in, the enduring state repression. The re- that, was a, that was a choice I made. Because I felt like, whereas a lot of people really wished I would have spent more time on what led to the rebellion, what I wanted to show was what we were up against. What is What does repression really look like? Because frankly, I think that's what always gets underestimated. And so that's why at Kinross, that's why at Vaughn, that's why in any prison uprising, frankly, every one of them that happened in this past September, every time I write about this publicly, you'll notice I always talk about the opening of the doors and what is happening now. Because I just feel like that's that's my particular hobby horse, but I it's one thing to celebrate a prison rebellion and to celebrate the brothers and the sisters who do it. It is completely another than to just go home. Because what happens to them afterwards, Attica shows, is the real center of gravity for what they're experiencing. I mean, that is a level of repression we can't even imagine. Rebellion and resistance continue so long as the carceral state and racial capitalism continue to dominate and oppress from Attica to Kinross. You have been listening to a special bonus segment from the interview with Heather Ann Thompson, which aired on our third episode, The Riots Will Continue. Tune in for our upcoming April episode focusing on women, the carceral state, and resistance. Be sure to check out our website at www.rustbeltradio.org. This show is co-produced by the Rust Belt Abolition Radio Team. Andres, David Langstaff, A. Maria, Cape Syed, and Alejo Stark. Original music by Bad Infinity.